Well, welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of the Sustainer segment of the John Henry Weston Show. I'm Danielle Zuccaro, the Sustaining Donor Coordinator with LifeSite News. We are glad to be back in this new year, and we have many wonderful questions to share with you today. John Henry is excited to answer them for you. Just as a reminder, the Sustainer segment is our biweekly exclusive Uh, where John Henry gets to answer questions from our sustainer community. Our sustainers are our LifeSite monthly donors who submit questions to be answered on the show. So if you'd like to become a sustainer, please feel free to sign up below. We welcome your questions once you have joined our community. There's also many other perks to becoming a sustainer, including behind the scenes, uh, some exclusive previews of some news, and definitely some contact with our staff. So feel free to sign up below, and we welcome your questions on a future sustainer segment. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome, John Henry, to the Sustainer segment. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Danielle. Good to be here. And also a very happy and holy Christmas to everybody. I hope it was really great for you. And best wishes and prayers for the new year. Well, we have a multitude of very interesting questions today. So we will begin with our first, which comes to us from Janet in Ohio. Janet asks... What do you suggest we do as faithful Catholics when we see sacrilegious abuses up on the altar or a lack of reverence toward the Holy Eucharist? Thank you for the question, Janet. Yeah, it's uh, it's a struggle because it actually is not too unfrequent, unfortunately. There is a document of the church out, uh, I believe it was called uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium or something like that, that actually told Catholics, lay Catholics, that they're actually responsible to report uh, Eucharistic abuses to the proper authority, which is in most cases your, your bishop, uh, you know, when you see a priest doing it. I think if we follow the... Um, advice the Holy Scriptures on how to deal with conflict, it's easy enough to do. First you go to the individual, then you go to the church, um, and then, or you bring witnesses, and then you go to the church. And so really it's, if you feel that the pastor is someone that you can mention this to, I would perhaps gather a a document from the church uh, that spells out the teaching of what they should be doing, for instance, and uh, bring it to the pastor if you think he's open to it. There's some who won't, you know, won't be, but, um, and show it to him and then pray. Uh, If that doesn't work and there's still the abuses going on, then it's your responsibility to go to the bishop. After that, of course, that's not on you anymore. So, you know, for instance, um, one of the practices condemned by the church is the um, pouring of the precious blood into other vessels. Uh, sometimes, uh, horrifically, you will see the consecration of uh, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus in Mass into a kind of a pitcher, and then it's poured out into different chalices or even cups and nonsense like that. That's a total abuse of the Blessed Sacrament in Mass, and it should never happen. When it does, it's incumbent upon us Catholics to report it uh, and uh, in, in that method. So... One, one of the things, though, privately that we should be doing when we see such things is to pray in reparation just there at the Mass. Another thing, though, is when we are exposed to, to that kind of abuse or even worse, you know, we do have to think seriously about moving parishes, particularly if you have 
uh, young children who could be negatively influenced by abuses of the Eucharist, of of the Mass in, in general. Um, both by externals, but also, uh, you know, by homilies that are off kilter. Um, so sometimes we just need to um, to get to a different parish. Thank you, John Henry. Our next question comes to us from Diego in Montreal. Diego writes, Are the newly approved Pfizer and Merck's pills against COVID-19 tainted by abortion? Are they morally acceptable? Diego, thanks for the question. We have um, in both the Pfizer and Merck pills is something interesting. A, they're brand new. So uh, we haven't assessed or been able to get to yet that particular determination. But with regard to the pills themselves, something's very fishy because Pfizer and Merck come out with these pills, A, in record time. So there's, they're relatively untested. One of the things we know for sure, and here's one of the things that should alarm you very much, is that the treatment protocols that were established by various doctors and have been shown to work, particularly, I should mention, Dr. Peter McCullough, who with Dr. Elizabeth Vliet put out the first of the, not authorized, but, but the treatment protocols, published them um, in medical journals so that these are published medical journals, peer-reviewed medical journals, so that you know they work. Dr. Zelenko's protocol he published. These are all protocols that have worked, have been very, very effective. The various medications they suggest, other than the zinc, D, C, um, and, and so on, vitamin protocols, including quercetin, but they also include ivermectin, um, and ivermectin, for instance, compared to the Pfizer drug, uh, Paxilivin or something like that, that it's called, but it acts in the same way. It's an antiviral. And interestingly, both the Merck pill and the Pfizer pill that have just been given this authorization, emergency youth authorization, are both about over $530 per treatment course. That's ridiculous. If you look at India's price for the ivermectin treatment that they were basically giving out, it was like $2.30. Compared to $530, that's something is really wrong there. So um, whatever's going on, it is really nefarious. We know that the ivermectin was effective and worked. We know that the treatment protocols were there. For them to now foist something on it to basically enrich the pharmaceutical companies again, it smells of something really, really bad. Um, So whatever is going on here, it seems ridiculous. And I know that there will be many people who will wonder at this because now that this protocol is um, open to us, uh, approved, therefore it will likely be allowed for in hospital treatments rather than uh, you know, basically denying them everything uh, until they just go on a vent or whatever. So there is that. There's one other concern because this is so new. Uh, we just learned the other day that in 2017, the um, the CDC gave approval to uh, pills with trackers on them so that you they could tell if you ingested the pill uh, and it dissolved in your stomach, it would send some kind of a notification. So there's all sorts of weird stuff. I don't put anything past the pharmaceuticals anymore because we have learned such horrific truths about 
what they've done and what they're doing that um, unfortunately the system of trust there is really broken and uh, when you follow that financial motive something smells and uh, I, I would avoid it. Our next question today comes from Jacqueline in Illinois. Jacqueline asks, how can we understand Pope Francis, who on the one hand dedicated a year to divine mercy and another to St. Joseph, yet wants to ostracize traditional Catholics who want to receive the Eucharist properly and attend the Latin Mass? He challenges doctrine regarding the Blessed Virgin Mary, as well as other longstanding proclamations made by previous popes. Jacqueline, thanks for the question. Very difficult one. It's, it's obviously something that we've been struggling with at LifeSight for the last seven years now. Um, and it is a very difficult thing to discern because uh, you're right, this it is very confusing. He seems to do some really good things, right, you know, every once in a while. You have to remember, we at LifeSight, we pray for Pope Francis every single day. Uh, as, uh, you know, as staff, we pray for him, uh, pray for his conversion, actually, uh, because that's truly what's needed. Um, it very much like uh, Saul was persecuting the church. Um, Pope Francis right now is persecuting the church. But one interesting thing about Saul, of course, is that he became Paul, the great apostle. He went from harming the church gravely to one of the greatest heroes in the church. And that's our real hope for Pope Francis. We, as Bishop Schneider himself, actually advocated publicly, pray for the conversion of Pope Francis. And that's what we've been doing. And it would be glorious if he did. Because imagine if that same attitude turned around, the same attitude that would basically get rid of Cardinal Burke, just like that, that would get rid of some of the best prelates in the church, would uh, dare to go up against, I mean, politically incorrect things that he's done, like bring out Cardinal Daniels when he's known to be not only, uh, you know, rainbow stole type of a Catholic priest uh, and, and bishop and cardinal, but also one who has even uh, been um, heterodox on abortion of all things. But even in terms of the world, he was so bad that he was caught on tape uh, telling a fellow who was abused by a bishop friend of his, who happened to be the guy's uncle, um, you know, not to go public with the abuse, not to go to the police with the abuse. Um, horrific stuff. And yet Francis has the gall, has the chutzpah to go forward with him on the stage during his election, on the stage, I mean, on the balcony uh, for the papal election and bring in Daniels over and over again uh, into the first, uh, you know, synod on the families and things like this. So there's a real chutzpah there. And if that chutzpah got turned around uh, into a converted Francis, would be quite something. But to get back to your question specifically, what are we to make of this? Well, I'm going to be very honest with you. I have found a pattern in Pope Francis. When he does something good, it usually is a prelude to something really alarming. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Pope Francis actually contravened the church's teaching on contraception. And that's huge. I understand we went through, you know, the whole debate in the 60s. And when we finally came to Humanae Vitae, remember, that was a sort of compromise. Because at first, it seemed in the debate during uh, the, which led up to Humanae Vitae, it really did seem like the church's teaching was going to change. In fact, the majority of those uh, cardinals that looked into the question for Paul VI actually were on the other side. And then we know that it was the intervention of Carol Boitiwa, who later became 
Pope John Paul II that actually brought uh, Humanae Vitae back to its senses, if you will, brought the uh, church teaching, made it solid again, and and people were already being told in confession, yeah, you can go ahead with the church is now approved for contraception, it's no problem, and so on and so forth. When uh, so when it finally came out. Humanivite came out and the church was solid in her teaching and affirmed the teaching against contraception for 2000 years. It was, it was a massive blow. In fact, there was a ton of consternation in the church, whole countries, bishops from the whole, you know, the whole of the country, the United States, Canada, other countries rejected Humanivite originally. Um, so just horrific stuff happened. And yet Francis in a plain interview, said that it was okay to use contraception. He was talking about Zika virus when there's a possibility of, uh, you know, transmission of Zika. Could you use contraception? He said, yes. Well, that was really weird. And so we thought, oh, that can't be. So we went for clarification to the Vatican press secretary at the time, and he told us, yes. Uh, Pope Francis said that, you know, in grave circumstances, he made even more broad, um, you can use the pill and the condom. So... That's totally outside of Catholic Church teaching. In fact, it's the opposite. And so how can this ever be? But here's how the statement started from Pope Francis. In fact, if you look at pro-life reporting the next day after he made the comments, the pro-life reporting was all about one thing. It was all about how Francis said that abortion is not only wrong it's a crime and so like it was a really good really strong statement and tons of catholic news services including the catholic news service and many others go look ran with the story pope francis says abortion is a crime and yet that was just the prelude to going against the church's teaching on contraception actually over the years i've noticed that very frequently there is a really good, strong statement, and then comes something really, really weird. I'll, you know what? I'll go really, really recent. So very recently, in the past week or so, there was the statement from Pope Francis about why are people just adopting pets? They should be having children. Very Catholic-sounding concept. And yet, what happened in the same week? So in the same week, we just saw Pope Francis double down massively on the obligation for COVID injections, for these abortion-tainted jabs that we're all supposed to get them, morally obliged to somehow. He also, in this same week, um, gives a letter of appreciation for Sister Gramic, who really was basically kicked out of all public appearance uh, for the Catholic Church by Pope Benedict and JP2 because of her... Um, basically being pro-LGBT in, in a way that contravenes church teaching. And yet Pope Francis not only praised her, we heard about a month and a half ago that he praised uh, New Ways Ministries, which, which was the ministries that uh, you know she founded uh, with Father Nugent. Um, and they were both ostracized by the popes because of their infidelity, because of their leading to harm those people who are same-sex attracted. So... You have all, and, and same week, uh, by the way, Francis tells traditional Catholics again, uh, you know, really maligns them, puts them to the back of the bus by saying that they are seeking a dead language. And so, you know, these kind of pejorative things that come out, these kind of hugely alarming things, 
they come very often after some kind of positive statement. So as sad as that sounds, when I hear a statement of Pope Francis that's very positive, I'm like, I'm cowering already thinking, uh-oh, what's coming now? So we really do need to pray. Uh, we need to pray for the conversion of Pope Francis. And just imagine if he does. It would be a glorious thing. And God knows, if I were a liberal bishop and saw him convert, I would be quaking in my boots because uh, from what <laughs> we've seen him do on the other side, it's unreal. So we'll see what comes. And our final question comes to us from Kirby today. He begins with a little anecdote by writing, Yesterday I was called by my pastor and asked not to come to Mass because I don't wear a mask due to my discernment of my conscience. I don't have any real experience in theology and didn't see any resources about assistance in this regard. I was wondering if you might know of any person or resource that could help me appropriately defend my ability to follow my own discernment. Kirby, thank you for the question. It is a very, very difficult one. And this is one that uh, people have been struggling with, well, obviously over the past couple of years. We've been trying to figure out what is the right thing to do here. And, and the answer on the part of Orthodox Catholics really does vary. Uh, in a way, it's so sad. It's, it's endemic of our time that we don't have clear teaching in the church, almost period, uh, because, you know, the Pope, there's something up with the Pope. And, and uh, in the scriptures we read, you know, they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. It's so true. Uh, finding clear teaching today on the specific issues that are most pertinent to us is, is very difficult. With regard to masking, it is a massive challenge to know what to do. But you're well within not only your rights as a Catholic, but your, uh, your own personal conscience to discern. So it's your conscientious decision, and they can't deny you the sacraments for that. So that's something that's very clear. So they might say, oh, it's a health issue, and so on and so forth. Well, let's take it up as a health issue. During SARS-CoV-1, um, there was a, this same, not same, but similar question that went to the, um, I think it was the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments. It might have been the CDF. And the question was asked by an English bishop, I believe it was, should, uh, do I have to give Holy Communion on the tongue to the faithful who want it, even though it's a health concern right now. And, and that's, by the way, a health concern that could be argued is much more uh, concerning than a mask because there you're actually touching someone's tongue or close to someone's tongue. And that's much more dangerous, you could say, than being like six foot apart from someone uh, and still needing a mask on. Nonetheless... But interestingly, the, the congregation came back, and by the way, you can find this letter right on lifesitenews.com, uh, my blog post on the issue of reception of Holy Communion on the tongue uh, has this letter within it, so please do avail yourself of that, and you can have the original letter. Um, the congregation comes back and tells the bishop that he is not able to deny the faithful, who are in a state of grace, obviously, from receiving the sacraments because of this desire to want to only give communion on the hand. So there's a health concern that, that seems uh, <laughs> um, above that of the mask, and yet the congregation rules, nope, you can't deny the faithful the sacraments. And so 
everything that I can understand on the question is that we we cannot be denied for uh, reasons of following our conscience on masking. Um, and many people have decided different ways. You know, um, a lot of people have decided to go along with it so that we can have the church open because there's those concerns too. Sometimes the health authority says, well, if you, if you mask like and follow the regular protocol for everybody else, then you can have, you know, your, your church is open. If you, if you don't, you can't. People make all sorts of decisions within that. And we don't want to condemn people for, um, you know, wearing a mask in church uh, or not wearing a mask in church. We should be able to defend the conscientious decisions of our brothers and sisters. But definitely, uh, you know, we're not allowed to or be denied the sacraments uh, for following our conscience uh, in that way. But uh, Kirby, thanks for the question. And uh, really something that we all need to pray about and discern um, with the best resources we can. Very good. Well, thank you so much, John Henry, for your time. And thank you all for staying tuned to this week's Sustainer segment. We look forward to getting your questions. And again, if you would like to become a monthly donor or a sustainer, please sign up below or go to lifesitenews.com and you can sign up in the right-hand corner of our webpage. We look forward to receiving your questions and look forward to seeing you next time on the sustainer segment of the John Henry Weston Show. Thank you so much and God bless you.